Hi there, I'm Matt Ashburn, host of the Needlestack podcast. Needlestack is brought to you by Authenticate, creators of the go-to online investigation platform, Silo for Research. If you're looking for a way to conduct research anonymously, protect against cyber threats, all while avoid tipping off your investigative targets, then you want to try Silo for Research. The Silo Research platform completely isolates your online web browsing, allowing you a choice of location and digital fingerprint, and also has built-in workflow and automation tools. The best part is that Silo for Research is software as a service, so it can be used from any computer or location without the need for things like virtual machines, standalone networks, or, or dirty networks. To learn more about Silo for Research, visit Authenticate.com. That's Authentic with the number 8.com. I can't tell you how many times I've mispronounced a word because I've only encountered it in books. <laughs> so, here's to books. And, yeah, to books, to only having to read. Welcome to Needlestack, the podcast for professional online research. I'm Aubrey Byron, Needlestack producer, and your host for today. And I'm Shannon Reagan, fellow Needlestack producer, and I will be your armchair expert for today. Uh, do you have a good chair on your arm? <laughs> I actually have no arms for my chair, so oh, like points deducted immediately. We're taking over the podcast for two weeks to give our talent a little holiday time off and talk about one of our favorite subjects, books. books. As you can see behind me, perhaps. Oh, yeah. um, the next two episodes will be a special book club edition of the show. So follow along for fun research tips and maybe find your next great read. I think I found my next great read. Um, so yes, today is our book club. Today is my book club. Aubrey will be doing her book club next week. Um, this is why we're drinking wine at two in the afternoon or not quite wine. They don't know um, what time it is. <laughs> don't tell them. Uh, my, my book club book is uh, We Are Bellingcat. Uh, this organization, if you're not familiar, many of our viewers and listeners probably are, is the darling of the OSINT community. Um, there have been lots of recommendations for this books on, you know, the OSINT community at large. I have now succumbed. I'm piling on to those recommendations. It was fascinating. Um, I was interested in Bellingcat for a long time, mostly through news articles, like really just seeing kind of the outcome of their research and the end finding. Uh, but I have been getting more into uh, following researchers on Twitter, following Elliot Higgins, uh, and really seeing, you know, how the sausage is made, which this book gets into a lot of sausage making. Awesome. So start us off. Who is Elliot Higgins and why did he write this book? Yes. Um, Elliot Higgins is the founder of Bellingcat and author of We Are Bellingcat. Uh, he is a college dropout. Uh, he was a stay-at-home dad for a time. Uh, so he really started doing these OSINT investigations, open source intelligence investigations in his spare time while he was working as an admin, while he was unemployed, um, and everywhere in between. Uh, and eventually it became the Brown Moses blog, uh, was kind of the first iteration of pulling all this, uh, you know, data together into something formal. Uh, and then that eventually turned into, uh, the Bellingcat organization, I think what is really interesting about Higgins in this book is that he often, you know, his 
detractors often try to pin the like armchair expert insult to him. And he's like, yeah, I'm not, I'm not really like an expert in anything but open source research. And that is the advantage, not the detraction. Um, so, you know, his curiosity and lack of expertise and love of open source is really, you know, what fuels this stuff. Um, so the book itself is how he turned that passion into the, the formation of, of Bellingcat. That's an interesting point of view. Yeah. So tell us a little bit more about Bellingcat and kind of the goal of that organization. Yeah. So uh, there is a, a part, I think it's like the last page, the end of the book is, of We Are Bellingcat is basically saying it's really hard to define who we are. There's a quote at the end of the book that is kind of a lack of definition, but you know, this is it. It says, today Bellingcat finds itself in an unusual position. We are not exactly journalists, nor human rights activists, nor computer scientists, nor activists, nor academic researchers, nor criminal investigators, but are the nexus of all of these disciplines. So I think at a base level, you can call them an, an investigative journalist organization, but it really is all of these things. And includes people from all of these practices uh, to conduct the investigations. So it's very multifaceted and speaks to the you know changing and evolving nature nature of open source investigations. Uh, the motto of Bellingcat uh, for any of our listeners out there, there is a grand prize: <laughs> is identify, verify, amplify. Um, so they're, you know, finding this information on open sources, verifying if it is true or not. And then when they find it to be true, to amplify that information. Uh, and they do that to support things like, like investigative journalism, which they themselves do. They have the site bellingcat.com, uh, but also to support legal cases, uh, academic study as well. Uh, and then I think the, the other big thing that the book gets at is just the, the effort to counteract the counterfactual community is how Higgins uh, identifies it, which obviously is, you know, a huge problem in national discourse today around the world, certainly here in the U.S., uh, this counterfactual community that kind of sneers at, at intelligence. So what is the counterfactual community? So the counterfactual community, you know, in this terms of, of sneers at intelligence is, you know, this belief that everything can be manipulated and organizations like Bellingcat are manipulating and they only exist to serve Western narratives. Um, they believe that anything can be evidence. Um, they use, you know, they claim to use, you know, videos and images to uh, back up their claims. They're doctoring, doctoring theirs. So they just assume everyone else is doctoring theirs as well. Uh, it leads to this like endless questioning, uh, question everything. They bring up Russia today a lot in this book, whose motto is question everything. Uh, and, you know, that, that nothing can be trusted or verified for that matter, which I think is what's so frustrating in OSIN is that the work is, is not just, you know, finding stuff, but verifying if it's true or not. Uh, they believe that everything is corrupt. The game is rigged the world over, you know, et cetera. Uh, but, you know, Higgins and Bellingcat, I think are really pushing that this not be the dominant voice because of the wealth of information is out there, um, because of the people that can be involved in the OSINT effort, uh, it doesn't have to be the dominant voice. Uh, it, if it is, it's incredibly depressing and just wrong. So, you know, we, we kind of have the power uh, to do this, to overcome the skepticism. Uh, here's how we do it. And uh, here's how we used it in investigating, you know, these, these cases that he looks at in the book. 
So what are some of the cases that they talk about in the book? Because they've been involved in some pretty interesting research in the past. Yeah, uh, to say the least. Uh, it goes back pretty far. Uh, it does grow, go chronologically for the most part. Uh, it starts with the uprisings against Muammar Gaddafi and Bashar al-Assad uh, and the subsequent you know, conflicts that played out thereafter. Uh, it looks at the downing of the Malaysian Airlines Flight 17 in Ukraine, which is really how I started hearing about Bellingcat through the news articles of that investigation. Um, goes into the Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville. Um, and another of the really in-depth ones is the poisoning of uh, Sergei uh, Skripal and his daughter Yulia in, in London. Uh, each of these is laid out, the investigation of them is laid out very in-depth uh, in the book, showing the tactics that they employed to, you know, identify, verify, and amplify this information. So that is, you know, that is the fascinating part of the book, in addition to the story of how Bellingcat itself uh, came out of these investigations. Well, speaking of tactics, do they kind of walk you through what kind of tools or techniques they're using in the book? Yeah, I think I think there's a lot to learn from the book, uh, in addition to just the, you know, the interest value. Uh, you know, each investigation kind of focuses on almost a different aspect. Uh, I would say like the, the Libya one that comes up first, he's really just getting started and focusing on geolocating uh, video footage. So this is pre-Bellingcat. This is just Elliot Higgins, you know, in his bathrobe at his, at his desk. Um, it's, you know, very grassroots uh, OSINT. So he lays out this one story that I found like really interesting and really just gets at the heart of what geolocating is, uh, that he is watching a video of uh, rebel forces claiming that they have uh, taken over this town and, and riding around the town. The government is like, no, that's not true. We still hold this town. Like, don't don't trust this. This is not real. And so, you know, based on lots of details around the video, um, one of the things that he does is map out all of the roads and intersections and landmarks that they're passing, like in the background of this like joyride the conqueror video. And with that, he just, you know, sketches it out on a piece of paper and then goes to Google Earth, looks at the purported town and starts trying to match, you know, these intersections and landmarks. You know, he scours uh, what he's drawn versus Google Maps and the satellite imagery uh, to see if it matches, you know, the purported location. And it does. And I think, you know, the the tip that he really gives from this, you know, you're seeing the logistics of how to how to do the geolocation, but he's also talking about how this process kind of takes out the messiness of three dimensions that, you know, you're taking a video that there's a lot of emotion in, there's a lot of uh, humanness in it and trying to ap approach it from, you know, just the cold hard facts. Um, so, you know, he says he's not a, an Arabic speaker, um, so he can't understand what they're saying. But it almost helps in some sense because you're not distracted by the emotion of it. Um, you're just looking at, you know, this does the satellite imagery match up? Um, and in terms of that, just look for really pick one detail, one intersection, one landmark, something that has, um, you know, a finiteness to it rather than trying to look for all things at once. You'll just kind of get lost in your search. So he's saying, you know, be very specific in terms of what you're going to look for um, to match up between the, the video or image and the satellite imagery. Um, yeah, the language barrier, I know, is a big thing for some of our listeners that we don't really talk about that much. But it's interesting for him to say that it can be helpful in a way. Yeah. Yeah, I think it, it, the takeaway is definitely don't let it be a barrier. Um, 
and sometimes it, it can be an advantage. There's definitely a place for language expertise, but that's not every place. Like I said, this is very a very bare bones uh, geolocating case, but shows how much you know curiosity um, and and open source tools you know play a part in it. So, what kind of investigations do they get into in Syria? Yeah, so Syria is next. Uh, I would say it might be the most graphic and violent. So, you know, this book is definitely not for the the faint of heart. Um, they get into some really um, disturbing things, uh, obviously. And like I said, you know, being able to almost ignore these elements in the course of the investigation, not necessarily in the impetus for it, uh, can be a, a gift not only to the quality of research, but also to the mental state of the researcher. You know, he talks about um, taking care of yourself, for one, uh, that you can be really affected by these things. So, you know, try to compartmentalize, you know, for lack of a better term, um, to, to improve the research itself and to kind of pr protect yourself in a certain way. Uh, in, in terms of like what type of research he focuses on in Syria, I think this is where he becomes uh, uh, an unsuspecting weapons expert uh, because it's all he's doing. He's just looking at the weaponry um, over and over and over on like so many different videos and, and images. And his lack of expertise is, again, kind of good for this investigation because he's only using open sources. He's verifying it, you know, with other information he's able to find online. And because of the nature of the, the conflict, traditional weapons expertise at sometimes didn't apply. Um, for the rebel groups, they were using a lot of DIY, uh, weaponry, IEDs, things like that, that they might look similar between different rebel groups, but in terms of traditional you know, military weaponry, it, that just wasn't what it was. Another aspect of the Syrian investigation uh, is a big one in terms of, you know, kind of geopolitical importance that he looks at weaponry uh, that was coming from, it was old like Yugoslav weaponry. It's like, why, why is this suddenly appearing? And they were able to find out in connection, I believe with a New York Times investigation that the Saudis had bought weapons from Croatia that were from the former Yugoslavia and were smuggling them into Syria uh, and distributing them to select you know, rebel groups that they, that they wanted to back. So that was fascinating. The other one, like I said, is, is pretty dark, uh, is the use of indiscriminate weapons by uh, the Assad forces. So barrel bombs, uh, cluster bombs, and uh, the chemical weapons attacks and how they attributed them to the Assad forces and not the rebel forces is really at the crux of that. And doing it all through social media and video footage. There was uh, one video that really kind of cracked this case wide open and it's a video of Assad forces in a military aircraft surrounded by barrel bombs and lighting a fuse of one with a cigarette and kicking it out the back of a plane onto uh, a town that had said we were the victim of, of barrel bombs and the Assad forces denied it. And, you know, not only is are you seeing it play out, the reason that they were able to verify it is because the cameraman at the end looks out over the back of the open aircraft uh, and essentially gets, you know, uh, an aerial view of this city that the bomb is now falling on. So, you know, things like wow. that is, it's a very, very much a smoking gun, um, but would not have, have been there, you know, were it not for people looking at, at open source footage from this perspective. You know, you mentioned, uh, 
investigation with the New York Times, I'm curious, what is their relationship like with traditional media or traditional journalism? Do they mention that? Definitely. Um, they're, they're there to be collaborators. Uh, that I think, you know, there are some p- parts where he comes off as critical uh, of, of journalism for, I think, historically ignoring open source information. And a lot of the intelligence or investigative bodies that were around before OSINT really took off, you know, like 10 years or so ago, I think it is still kind of a dirty word uh, in those those agencies and, and newsrooms uh, that are used to relying kind of on their traditional means and just tend to ignore open sources. Um, I, Higgins, I think, essentially says that that's a, a form of neglect now. You don't necessarily need to become an OSINT expert yourself, but you need to be able to partner with these people um, and understand the intelligence products that they are releasing uh, and include them, uh, use them as corroboration for the other sources that you're relying on. Were there other investigations in the book that stood out to you? Yes, yes. Uh, I think some of the most interesting ones were not just investigating, you know, verifying a you know piece of footage or whatever, but uh, performing some means of attribution of who's responsible for this, uh, how how high up does it go, that sort of thing. So there were two ones that were really in-depth. There was the one on tracking the buck, buke. I'm probably saying this wrong. I'm not a weapons expert. I've only read this word. (laughs) The missile launcher that uh, took down the Malaysian Airlines flight uh, and saying that not only did it come down by a a missile, but that it came down from this one that was in rebel-held territory and that came from Russia and Russia, its military command must have known that this was going on. So that one is really painstaking, you know, tracking the launcher, you know, coming from Russia, moving into the rebel-held territory, moving back out one missile shy uh, back into Russia and, you know, all of the logistics of, you know, who had to okay that in order for it to happen. So... That one was really fascinating. Lots of, you know, image verification, video verification of open sources included in that. Um, the other one that involves attribution is the Skripal poisoning, uh, the Novichok uh, poisoning in London. Uh, again, an amazing case study in, in attribution. So identifying who the inv- individuals were, their military links, um, and then basically who in the chain of command, again, had to, had to okay this. And doing it, this was the one that was a lot of open sources, but they essentially ran into a brick wall and they did accept closed sources into this investigation. And he talks a lot about the kind of ethical standards of doing that um, and why they chose to do it in this case and why they don't generally choose to do it in others. The other one hit very close to home in terms of the U.S., uh, the Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville Uh, was interesting to see again, kind of an ethics consideration of who they chose to investigate and identify uh, and who they chose to to ignore at this rally as well. I can't tell you how many times I've mispronounced a word because I've only encountered it in books. So <laughs> here's to books. And, yeah, to books, to only having to read. How did they determine, though, in the Unite the Right rally um, who was investigated and who was ignored? Yeah. So they focus not on the entire rally. They focus on a specific video of an altercation, to put it lightly, of a group of white men beating a black man, I think, in a a parking structure or parking lot. Um, So they do identify them. But, you know, everyone else at the rally, 
technically still covered under First Amendment rights. And there's this sense of not wanting to release the hounds. I know, um, like in the Boston bombing, there was the misidentification. They talk about this in the book of who the, you know, the um, suspects were and what that led to. Uh, and so they're very careful in terms of what they choose to investigate and then the information that they choose to amplify and kind of release to the broader community. Yeah, I remember the Boston bombing. And that actually kind of leads me to a question is I'm curious kind of what their ethical standards are, especially both considering themselves journalists, Oyandor, because, you know, your identifications, especially if incorrect, can have yeah. um, pretty drastic effects on people. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I think the importance of, of establishing an organization like Bellingcat is to kind of is to put some parameters and some ethics around open source, which is kind of the Wild West, you know, for lack of a better term. Anybody can do it. Anybody can access the information. That is the beauty and the danger of it. Um, so for Bellingcat, they choose to only investigate uh, items that have uh, significance in terms of uh, political uh, or like political power or global conflict uh, or themselves are crimes under local jurisdictions or things like war crimes. Um, I think another you know ethic is uh, transparency, that whatever they lay out, they need to make sure that anybody can go kind of follow that paper trail and come to the same conclusions that they can. Um, and that there is a duty to preserve that paper trail. Um, there is a, a thing that Higgins keeps coming back to. You can tell it really affects him personally that at a conference, um, a he's speaking and a Syrian activist stands up and says, people are risking their lives to collect this this footage and this evidence and pretty much nothing is being done with it uh, in terms of prosecutions or uh, military efforts. Uh, why, why should we risk our lives to do this? And that comes back to Higgins' duty to preserve. So they themselves are, are serving as a receptacle, you know, to preserve this information, lest it disappear. And that can disappear because uh, the services that they're uploaded to go out of service. This was the case in a very popular video upload site for Syrian activists that just shut down and all of that was lost. Um, in terms of platforms that are still up and running, they can choose to delete your content because of violations of, of terms of service, uh, things like that. Uh, they're also preserving, not just for you know future prosecutions, but also if we're still not able to prosecute, uh, but there's this possibility of revisionist history that authoritarians decide, we're just gonna pretend like this never happened, get rid of it, erase you know the history of it. And so he takes archiving, uh, I think itself as, as an ethical uh, requirement to, um, to archive and to maintain chain of custody. Um, that you don't want this evidence thrown out if it does get to a court of law because it was sloppily handled, it could have been manipulated, and you know it's all all for naught because you didn't follow chain of custody rules. Yeah, the archivist part is something I didn't realize they were doing and seems important. Yeah, I mean, I think Bellingcat is doing it to an extent, like you know, for specific investigations. But he talks about uh, different organizations, like there's one uh, for the Syrian conflict that is literally making an archive of all of this information and trying to catalog it in a way that's, you know, easily searchable um, for this, you know, future use. So in the spirit of anybody can do this at home and or what might be relevant to our audience of professional researchers, 
do they talk about the tools or resources they use? And is there anything you think um, our audience might want to know about? Yeah. Uh, I mean, some of them are pretty obvious. I think the award for like most uh, cited tool is Google Earth. It's just amazing to think like before Google Earth, like a lot of this research just would not be possible. So thank you, Google Earth. Thank you, Google. Something we don't we don't say often (laughs) to the to the overlords. uh, another one that was more obscure and very specific, uh, but very useful to geolocation is SunCalc. Uh, so this is a site that, uh, or a tool that helps you um, understand the time of day that some you know piece of uh, video or image was taken based on the shadows. Uh, so it helps in, in verifying the legitimacy of uh, the context you know around the posting of information, uh, or you know if you're doing uh, something chronological like the uh, missile launcher. Uh, investigation of it's like, okay, the missile was here at this time. It was here at this time. It was here at this time. It was here at this time. Um, Sun calc was something I'd never heard of before. Um, the other one uh, getting after chain of custody uh, is Hunchly. I think we've recommended this on the show before. Uh, it tracks the investigators, all of their clicks and views, uh, preserves all the pages that you visit to retain that entire process uh, and preserve it for you know future investigations if somebody else picks it up. So Hunchly is the other one. And then I mentioned also, uh, if you're investigating in terms of a particular conflict, there may already be archival databases that are open source that you can access uh, for cataloged and easily searchable information. And of course, then there is Bellingcat uh, themselves, that they offer training on all these types of OSINT tactics. Uh, They have an online investigation toolkit. Both of these are available on their site. I believe they're free for anyone to use. So go check them out. There's tons of you know different trainings and, and workshops that they do that should be very helpful. So last question, how many stars out of five would you Oh rate my it? goodness. I would <laughs> give it, I mean, for an OSINT book, I would give it five stars. It's chock wow. full of infor- yeah, it's chock full of information. It is the OSINT world up, down, in, out. Uh, and because they have the investigative journalism background or his ghostwriter does at least. Um, it's really well written. Like it's a pretty short book, um, but it's very dense. Uh, but to be able to tell those stories in an interesting way that you don't feel bogged down, um, it was just it was a good read. So five stars. Awesome! I can't wait to pick it up. <laughs> Hopefully, uh, our audience will too. Yeah. Well, you heard it here. Thanks for telling us about your OSINT read, Shannon. And if you liked what you heard, you can subscribe to our show wherever you get your podcasts, watch episodes on YouTube, and view transcripts and other episode info on our website, authentic8.com slash needlestack. And that's authentic with the number 8.com slash needlestack. Be sure to follow us on Twitter and tell us what you thought of the show at needlestackpod. And we will be back next week with another OSINT book club with me in the hot seat having to explain it to you and Shannon as the host. (laughs) We'll see you then. Bye.